I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you remember the name Jason Kander, it might be from this mega viral ad that raised gobs of money for his 2016 run for the Senate. The Democrat in this race, Kander, might have had the best campaign ad of the entire season. Right. You know, he was putting together an AR-15 rifle blindfolded. I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I'd volunteer to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. And in the state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. On election night, Kander was expected to narrowly beat Blunt, a result that would have been seen as stunning just a few months earlier. But he ended up losing by just a hair. But his performance put him on the national map. And soon, Barack Obama was floating him as a potential 2020 presidential candidate. And though Cantor never declared he was running, crisscrossing the country, giving speeches in Iowa and New Hampshire, and building what very well could have been a credible campaign for the White House, at the last moment, he decided against the presidential run and instead put himself up for mayor of Kansas City. And just ahead of that election, he made a shocking announcement. Veteran Jason Kander was running for mayor of Kansas City and was expected to win when he made a stunning decision. He was dropping out of the race because he was suffering from PTSD as a result of his time spent in Afghanistan. Since his deployment 12 years ago as an Army intelligence officer, Jason Kander has struggled with depression and anxiety. You know, I went almost 12 years without a good night's sleep. I mean, just violent nightmares every night, a lot of nightmares about being kidnapped. Um, over time, those evolved into nightmares about people kidnapping my family um, because I had been home for longer. Uh, and then I would do things like I'd get up in the middle of the night and I'd sort of patrol my house because I was convinced someone was trying to get in. Jason Kander went to some very dark places, and this interview does too, but it's the type of conversation that is too often avoided. He's now documented his journey in an important and riveting new book called Invisible Storm, a Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Jason Kander, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And so, Jason, you, you might be the first candidate in American history who ever dropped out of a race saying that they were wanted to spend more time with their family and actually actually meaning it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to go back through all the way back to our very first elections, and I think you might be the first. <laughs> well, you know, there's somebody had to break that ceiling. Somebody, yes, that, that ceiling, the not lying ceiling when you uh, leave leave a race. Um, so, could you can we start by going back to October first, twenty eighteen? Sure. This is how your book starts. That's a, a prologue that really you know grabs you by the throat in a way that very very few do. You're walking into the the VA. Yeah, absolutely. So I walk into the VA. I'm ready to finally get some help for uh, the PTSD and 
as subsequent depression and suicidal ideation uh, that I'd been experiencing. Uh, and at that moment, uh, I was the primitive front runner for mayor of Kansas City. Um, we were off to quite a lead. Um, and you know, we were in a position to win, which sounds like bragging, but I mean, the reality is that that's the position you should be in if you were about to announce for president and then decide to run for mayor of your hometown. Instead, you really ought to be the front runner or what are you doing? Uh, and so that's where we were. And I go in ready to get help, but also kind of mortified at the fact that, uh, you know, I looked like hell and everybody in there was recognizing me. Uh, and a few minutes later, I find myself basically in the, in the suicide hold room. They'd taken away all my belongings and they'd given me a pair of scrubs that were like several sizes too big. And so I'm sitting there and, uh, you know, again, people are, they're being kind about it, but I can tell by the double takes that like even back in like this suicide hold area, I'm being recognized. And then when this young psych resident comes in to speak to me, who I guess was from out of town, I at first was really relieved that he didn't recognize me. And we talked for about a half hour and I lay out the symptoms I'd been having that I really had never talked to hardly anybody about uh, other than my wife, which was everything from, you know, night terrors for 11 years that kept me from having a good night's sleep, um, self-loathing, shame, uh, depression, a sense of being in danger all the time or my family being in danger all the time, just this low level simmering anger that existed constantly. And as a result, just complete exhaustion. Uh, and then all of that had also spiraled into just feeling depressed and eventually having suicidal thoughts. And so I lay all this out and we talk for about 30 minutes. And then uh, toward the end of the conversation, he just happens to ask me, he says, do you have like a particularly stressful job or something? And I say, well, I'm in politics. And he uh, is like, what does that mean? And I, I just kind of lay out for him while well, I was in the state legislature. Then I was the secretary of state. I ran for the U.S. Senate. I was getting ready to run for president. Now I'm running for mayor, but I'm going to call that off tomorrow because uh, I want to get help for this. And he's taken back by it, and he's just like, I mean, remember, I'm sitting there like with my arms wrapped around my knees in scrubs that don't fit, and he's just like, what do you mean you're going to run for president? President or what? And I'm like, well, of the United States, which felt silly. But then he's like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, you know, I was going to Iowa and New Hampshire a lot, and... And so he's just looked so skeptical that I've gone from being mortified that everybody in there is recognizing me to being a little irritated that this guy doesn't believe me. And he finally asked me, he says, well, who told you you could run for president? And I'm like, I don't know, man. You know, I sat with Barack Obama in his office, just me and him for like an hour and a half. And he seemed to think it was a pretty good idea. And so he takes a beat and thinks about it. And then he asked me, how often would you say you hear voices? Um, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> just just yeah, perfect. So, so that's how I opened the book. And then from there, it kind of goes backward to tell the story of how I got to that point. And then uh, eventually in the third act, it tells you what happened after that and how I, I uh, got to a, a place in my life I refer to as post-traumatic growth. And, and I want to talk about how you got to that. And I, I think a, a big part of it revolves around our idea in the United States of, of what trauma is who is allowed to experience trauma and what effect that is allowed to have on us. And I, I recently interviewed a, a veteran named, named John Lubecki who said something kind of disturbingly profound or profoundly disturbing, I'd say actually, which was that he said something like veterans are lucky because our trauma is socially acceptable. So it's not, it's not that veterans are lucky because they have trauma, but because mm -hmm. our country assumes that they had some type of legitimate trauma that therefore they're allowed eventually to be able to seek treatment. But there's also a lot of layers inside there because within the veterans community and with it from veteran to veteran, what counts 
is different. You you talk about having a friend who said to you, look, somebody always has a story that you consider to be worse. I think his example was there's a veteran at a, at a VFW right now saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in the first wave on Normandy, but I was actually in the back of the boat, not in the front of the boat. So all, somebody always has a tougher story than you. And so it became hard for you to kind of identify with that experience. How common is, is that among people who have PTSD? I think it's nearly universal. And yeah, so it starts with sort of the, the degrees of it within the veteran community. And then absolutely, I agree with, uh, with your friend um, that you talked to because it just ripples out and gets worse from there. So, you know, in the military, there's this very necessary form of brainwashing. As soon as you get off the bus at basic, it's made very clear to you that what you're doing is no big deal and that a lot of people have it worse. And that never really, that drumbeat never really stops. And the reason I say it's a necessary form of brainwashing is because like in my job as an intelligence officer going into meetings with people who, you know, I didn't know what their allegiances were. I was me and my translator basically by ourselves, uh, and there's no backup. Nobody knows where we are for hours at a time in the most dangerous place on the planet. In order to keep going into those meetings, recognizing that you may not get out and that you're outnumbered and outgunned, and you may be about to get your head cut off on YouTube, uh, you've got to really believe that this is no big deal and that other people are doing much harder stuff. And as long as you believe that, you can keep doing it. And, and it's true for my buddy Steven, who was in firefights uh, constantly during his tour and lost friends right next to him. You know, if he doesn't believe that somebody else has it much worse, he's not going to keep doing that, right? And Steven was the one who, who gave me the example of the, of the D-Day vet. So it gets worse from there, right? Because, well, first of all, the problem with that is that when you leave the military, they don't sit you down and flip that switch off. They don't say, okay... Now that you're leaving, you should know that actually that was some crazy shit. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're going to need to deal with this because actually, like, yeah, there were people who had it worse, but it doesn't really matter. And it was serious. Like, that was real stuff that you experienced. Like, it's not validated in that way. And so while we say often to veterans, uh, sort of our culture has got this drumbeat of it's an act of strength, not an act of weakness to get help. That is only half the battle. The other half is letting them understand, no, that was a big deal. And like you earned your PTSD and you can get better. So what happens with me all the time, uh, because, you know, ever since going public with my own trauma, is that people approach me and they tell me that it meant a lot to them that, that I did that. And oftentimes those people aren't veterans and they will couch their comments to me by saying, you know, I wasn't in a war or anything. And, and I always stop them and I'm like, that has nothing to do with it. Like what happened to me? has nothing to do with what happened to you. Your brain doesn't know what my brain experienced. You can't rank your trauma out of existence. I tried for a long time to do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's important that people understand if you had a bad car accident, a bad injury, you survived cancer, you lost a loved one, maybe you just went through a bad divorce, maybe it was a very difficult childhood. I mean, good Lord, if you were responding to COVID during the last few years as a medical professional. So all of these things are trauma. And I am really adamant that we not gatekeep trauma because trauma is trauma. It doesn't really matter what another person experienced. Yeah. And as I was reading the book and thinking about this interview, I thought there was, there was a moment in it that really jumped out at me as something I connected to and identified with. And I was like, well, should I even bother mentioning that? Because like I said, I wasn't, like you said, I wasn't in a war. So does this even, does this even count? But then as I thought through what you were saying towards the end of the book, I thought, no, actually, this is worth, this is worth talking mm -hmm. about. And 
you really described this kind of low hum of, I don't know if the word is fear, but in a, in a, in a way that I hadn't seen it put quite like this before. And my, my quick story was that in so fall of 2005, as I'm becoming a, trying to become a journalist, I'm like 28 at this point. I'd had a whole, wouldn't call it a career. I'd had a lot of different jobs and nothing was, nothing was panning out. I said, well, I just, why don't I try journalism? And this is what I've always enjoyed doing on the side. Why don't I try to actually make a career of it? And a, a friend of mine had a kind of translator and a, and a driver for a, a trip to Northern Iraq mm. and invited me along with him. This, my friend, Christian Parenti, still, a, still a journalist doing great work today. says, great, let's, let's go. This is fall of 2005. But we go to northern Iraq, and so re relatively safe place. I mean, at the time, Iraq itself, as, as I'm sure you remember, though you weren't there, but you remember that 2005 Iraq was absolute, absolute catastrophe everywhere. And so it, there was no airport yet in Erbil, so we drove through Turkey and then drove from the border, catch a cab at the border to get over to Erbil. And the middle part of Iraq, Mosul in particular, was a place that was hotly contested and the Sunni insurgency was on fire. And there was the, the rumors going around were that the, the price tag for an American was about $100,000. So the whole time you're going through this area, you know you have this blaring $100,000 price tag on you. And we had this moment, so we pick a cabbie after we go across the border. I mean, we kind of, we decide like there's no, we're not going to Mosul. Like there's no way we're letting this cabbie take us to Mosul because he can either get his couple hundred dollars you know, to take us to Erbil, he could get $100,000, mm -hmm. 200000 actually, because there's two of them, to go to Mosul. And I remember we get to this traffic circle, and we hold our breath as we're going around the traffic circle because there's a sign that says, you know, Mosul South, and then the third, the third turnoff is Erbil. And as the car goes past Mosul, you know, we kind of both look at each other and we, we exhale. We're like, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to do what we had been thinking we might have to do. And who knows what that is, but you know, we're not, we're not, we're not letting this car go south. So then it goes into Erbil and we spent about two weeks in Northern Iraq and the entire time there was, there was never anything traumatic that happened in a kind of micro way. Like nobody shot at us, nothing like that. But just the entire time you're there, there's this kind of low level electric hum of like, is something going to happen? Mm -hmm. And nothing did. I came back. I'm fine. Like I didn't, I didn't suffer any PTSD as a re, as a result of that. I did get some Giardia and didn't have insurance, so my brother <laughs> shipped me from Cip, some Cipro. He was over in Thailand, and that that took care of that. Maybe the Giardia uh, actually helped me not think about it. Uh, but that low level hum of anxiety you you described having that for basically the entire time in Afghanistan. When was the point that you realized you were you were feeling that? And how common is it that that is the kind of trauma? that stays with people. You know, it's hard for me to, to speculate about how common it is for others. Although I think it's whatever the commonality is, I think it's greater than we estimate. But the interesting thing for me was, and, and I don't know if this was true for you as well. I was only vaguely aware of it while I was there. Um, mm -hmm. and in my case, it's because, you know, when I first got there for the first week or two, uh, everything you're doing, you're doing for the first time, right? Like first time right. out on the road, first time in a meeting with somebody who you're like, oh, I'm not entirely certain about this person. You're very aware of that. And in my case, like I would get 
a little bit nauseous at first and that kind of thing. I mean, basically. Right. And I only did two weeks. So, right. Well, but it doesn't matter. Like it's still, you're, you still were exposed to the experience that most humans, at least certainly most Americans, thankfully don't have, which is the genuine realistic fear of being killed violently. And so, uh, in my case, I would, the only thing I would add to that is also the readying yourself to kill violently as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so first couple of weeks, you know, I was, I was aware of that, but I also was very excited. I mean, I had been, you know, probably like you, I had gone out of my way to get there. I wanted to be a part of this. Right. Mm -hmm. So after a couple of weeks, your body still experiences the same thing, but it just doesn't manifest the same way because now it's your job and it feels normal and the people around you are doing it. It doesn't like in my case, it didn't mean I wasn't scared. It was just, my body was like, okay, I know what this is. And you know, I had a couple of guys I worked with who were doing uh, similar jobs, which fed into what the army had taught me of. It's no big deal. And so as a result, uh, I spent most of my deployment, just <laughs> it sounds so corny, just super grateful that I got the chance to do it because to me it was, I knew it was a unique experience and I knew that I was getting to do things uh, that usually just kind of see in the movies. Right. And I knew it was a life experience. And most importantly, you know, this was 2006, 2007, I was in Afghanistan. And at that moment, we all still felt pretty good about our mission in Afghanistan. And I thought what I was doing was really important uh, and meaningful. And it felt that way. So it wasn't until I got home and started to experience some of the symptoms that I even began to lightly entertain the possibility that it had had this effect on me. Yeah. And Christian and I had actually been in about six months before that, we'd been in Bolivia during an uprising that actually the one that brought Ava Morales to power. And while we're there, dynamite was thrown at our feet, turned out to be only a blasting cap, no dynamite in it, you know, rubber bullets, the tear gas blasted, you know, right at us, you know, they're supposed to shoot it at the ground. Instead, this one, this one officer shot it like right, just right next to us from like 10 Hmm. feet away. But that, for some reason, I just think about that as an experience. Whereas that, that low level hum kind of has lasted longer, in a in a way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a clinician, but here's how this has been explained to me. A couple of things. One, the awareness and exposure to just things lasting for a while. Like for me, it was just, you know, a long period of time being at at an alert, like a, a state of alert and readiness. But the other thing that has been explained to me, which isn't really an explanation, but is kind of the best I have to go with is we don't really know. Like, we don't really know why some people respond, uh, their brain responds a certain way to certain events and other people don't. I mean, there there's plenty of case studies of, you know, situations where you have two guys or gals who are in the same squad who witness the exact same event, but one of them is standing 10 feet, you know, to the right of where the other is standing. And so one of them ends up with PTSD and the other one doesn't. And they don't know if it's because of the vantage point. They don't know if it's because of something in the way that person's uh, brain is made up. If there's something chemical, if there's, you know, something about their childhood that made them more uh, vulnerable to um, developing those kind of symptoms. They just don't know. There's a lot of work to try and figure that kind of thing out. But in my case, that just... That just looked like I had a lot of work to do to get to the point where I could go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, 
you know, I know people who, you know, were there much longer than me and, you know, in my own like subjective view, experienced more trauma than me who haven't had night terrors, but have had hypervigilance, but I had both. I don't know why. And at some point I just had to go, you know, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, at some point you just go, well, how come, you know, I don't need eyeglasses and somebody else does, you know, does it really matter? (laughs) No. And so it just becomes, I'm just going to treat it. To pick up on something you alluded to earlier, which was the preparing yourself for the willingness to kill, uh, a, a journalist that I used to work with at the Huffington Post, David Wood, did a this phenomenal series, and then it turned it into a book on what he what he described. And I don't think he's, he coined this term, but the term of moral injury that just the and that the most basically just preparing yourself for the willingness to kill creates a creates a a, a moral injury inside yourself somewhere that is you know it's a, a spiritual kind of wound, and you. Can you talk a little bit about that experience that you had with the uh, with the driver, where you had you hadn't learned that there was a new there there was a new route that he was taking? Because I think this speaks to that moral injury in one of the most clear ways I've seen. Yeah, there's a couple of things like that where you know I can't help but see it from the other person involved's perspective, right? Like in that case, it was we were told. Well, let me let me provide some context, which is. I lived in this set of safe houses. Uh, most of us did on my little camp in Kabul, Camp Agers, this set of safe houses, which was apart from Camp Agers itself. And so in order to go to where I would sleep at night, uh, you had to get in this little shuttle driven by a local national, which wasn't <laughs> the smartest setup. And I don't, I think they stopped using it after this, but, and, and we were always told, Hey, you know, watch carefully the route that your driver's taking, not unlike your experience, because you don't want to be taken somewhere else and, you know, kidnapped and taken away. And the other piece to this is that in my day job as an intelligence officer, like that's what I was on alert for all the time anyway, right? It was kidnapping. It, that was, to me, that was the greatest threat to me mm-hmm. over there. And uh, and it later would become the subject of my literal nightmares and that kind of thing. So it was late at night and we were never supposed to go in one of these shuttles alone. You're always supposed to have a buddy with you, but I had been up for like 24 hours or something. And, and so, and I knew I was getting up in a few hours to get back to work and I just wanted to get a nap in. It was like middle of the night and I was waiting for somebody else to show up to take the shuttle and nobody did. And I was like, screw it. So I got in and the guy takes a different turn than usual. And so I start trying to yell at the guy that you know what's he doing that kind of thing he's not paying attention eventually i'm yelling he's yelling back because he don't speak english and i don't speak dari and uh, we're not communicating at all and finally i you know i put my pistol to the back of his head and i'm thinking am i gonna have to blow this guy's head off and then so that the vehicle stops so that i can jump out and run away before he takes me to wherever this taliban snatch crew is and right as i'm like having to make this decision, I see the back of the safe houses and apparently somebody had changed the route so that we were, which is a smart thing to do. You don't want to have the same route all the time, mm-hmm. but had changed the route and without notifying us. And so we went into the back of the safe houses instead of the front. And I didn't know what else to do. So I just said, sorry, which he didn't understand, I'm sure, and left. And yeah, so I, I was left for years thinking about what impression I left that guy with, what you know, trauma I left that guy with thinking about the American maniac who was threatening to execute him from, for what he could tell for no reason. 
And there were other incidents like that. But the other thing, and this is more part of the way that we tend to diminish our own trauma, is that some of my very complicated feelings about that and about another incident were were really about my friends who I knew who had had, in my view, you know, this is me again, fighting the urge to rank my own trauma out of existence, which doesn't work. But I knew guys who had been in situations like that and they pulled the trigger. And it's I, it's not that I was like more alert. I, I was fortunate that what I saw popped up, which was the back of the safe house. If I hadn't, that's the situation I would have been in. Or I had a situation where I came within a split second of shooting a young boy because he had startled us and he had snuck up on our vehicle at a time when that's what um, suicide bombers were doing. And I, I know people, uh, people close to me, who were in situations like that where they weren't able to see as clearly uh, in that situation as I was. And again, not having to do with skill or anything on my part, just total circumstance and where they did take a life and knowing almost immediately afterwards that it, that the person was, was not uh, hostile and that they had taken an innocent life. And so that complicates the feelings as well because it, it causes me to sort of embody their feelings and, and feel like how fortunate I was, but also just how sick to my stomach it makes me feel for them. So yeah, that I, I guess you could count that as moral injury, sure. And I think the term is apt, uh, perhaps overused sometimes, but I suppose that's a, a, a smaller example of it. How so? How do you think it gets overused? I think sometimes overused is maybe too general. What I mean is it's generalized sometimes to all of trauma, right. all of post-traumatic stress. Whereas, you know, for instance, like if you just go through a traumatic event, it is an injury. And I think of it as an injury. And I talk about it in the book as an injury. PTSD is an injury. But to me, moral injury is is more the trauma that is associated with seeing something or being a part of something un, unwittingly or, or even wittingly, I suppose, that is, it really shakes your idea of morality and of justice in the world. Right. That's how I think of it too. Like the the story of the of the young boy too. You know, just on a very basic level, we we think of ourselves as good people. We know that good people don't kill innocent children, and then yet you you have to reconcile this experience of nearly having done that. And like for people who actually did do that, it's it just a brutal moral injury that. Well, and yeah. sometimes it's just seeing the seeing the dead body of a child. Like mm-hmm. it isn't your your connection to it can be completely. You don't need you don't need a connection to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so to me, and look again, I'm not a clinician, so I'm just talking out my fourth point of contact here. But to me, it can be j- just as dramatic to see that kind of thing because it exposes to you this brutal nature of the world that once you've seen, it's hard not to see. And not just the brutal nature of the world. I'm curious for your take on this: it, the brutal nature of the project that you're willingly participating in, you know, not mm-hmm. even if you're, even if you do everything perfectly and ethically and personally never commit any harm to anybody. If you see a, you know, a dead child in the street, you're reminded that that may not be happening if this occupation weren't happening or this project weren't happening. Does that play a role or because it was early enough in the, in the operation and the occupation that and people still had to hope that it was making the world a better place that 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 didn't piece together that way. Yeah, I can't say in my case that that played a role. And I also want to be clear, I, you know, 
I didn't have that experience. I, I just use that as right, an example. Right. Like, but during my deployment, I, I, I'm very thankful that I didn't see that particular thing. But, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not a clinician. I don't know what the actual definition is. But I, but I do know that from a basic trauma point of view, our society sends people off to war and then basically expects them to be the same person when they come back. I mean, that's sort of the expectation we set up. And the truth is that no matter what you experienced, there is a sense of you've seen things that other people haven't seen. And so I don't, I don't know that you classify this as moral injury, but like it is part of this that you come back and now you're supposed to like go back to your job and you're supposed to care about how good the Wi-Fi is. And sometimes you do like, you know, perspective is perishable. Sometimes you're just pissed your Wi-Fi doesn't work. But sometimes you hear somebody, you know, in line at a coffee place and they're frustrated that their order was wrong. And you just want to be like, what are you fucking talking about? Right. Because you, you've just seen things that other people haven't seen. And so like for me, when I went to the legislature and I've got, I'm, I'm working on ethics reform and I've got Democrats and Republicans telling me they're with me, but they're afraid that they'll lose their parking spot because the speaker will be mad at them if they sign on to the bill. And I'm just, it's just impossible to process, right? Because I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I've seen 19 year old kids climb into vehicles, like when they're so scared, they're about to puke, but they still get into them because they know it's the right thing. And you're like, you don't want to walk another 30 feet to your Corolla. Like that would just send me into a quiet rage and sometimes not quiet. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you write about how you, you came back and you threw yourself into, into politics. Um, first, mm -hmm. winning, winning a state legislative seat, going on to win a secretary of state race outworking everybody and then running for senate which probably most of our listeners remember in in 2016 and i'm curious and actually to, let me ask you this first so 2016 people who've gone back and looked at the movement of the polls you know they they, they pinpoint two places you know the, the comey announcement coming out knocks a couple points off of democrats nationally uh, and then comey coming out with his letter again, where he bizarrely kind of cleared Hillary Clinton in like the week before the election. Turns out paradoxically, that actually knocked another couple points off of Democrats because it fired up Republicans. And they're like, you know, they thought it was rigged and 
And for Democrats, they'd never thought she was guilty of anything, so it didn't move them one way or the other. And so you had a bunch of Senate races, like Russ Feingold in Wisconsin, Katie McGinty in Pennsylvania, yours, that may have been moved by that. Do you, And so this is the first part of a two-part question. Do you think that the, that moved your 2016 race enough, or did it move it at all, or were you kind of in a different orbit from the national conversation? No, I think that's probably why we lost, <laughs> like, right. to be honest. Right. Um, look, I mean, we we were on a very steady climb, and the Republicans in Washington were starting to write off the race as a loss for them. From my understanding is that uh, our opponents polling had us as mm -hmm. a few points ahead, even, you know, going into election I've day. That. I've heard the same from their side. Yeah, and and I, I don't think I'm talking too out of school to say that, at least from what I've heard, my opponent was surprised. Uh, mm -hmm. Not shocked, but surprised when they won. And I, I actually, believe it or not, have a pretty good relationship with Senator Blunt now. We still don't agree on much, but we have we have a good mm -hmm. relationship. And um, It's an amiable character, old school Republican kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, look, in the environment that we're in, where the junior senator from my state is basically <laughs> participating in a violent insurrection against the country. I mean, yeah. it's it's not too hard to feel like I can have productive conversations with Senator Blunt, and I do. So that said, yeah, no, I think that's basically what it was. I interestingly, I I guess I, and this is for, for a guy myself who, with regard to my deployment and my service, spent a lot of time thinking about the past because I was stuck in these intrusive thoughts and disruptive memories. I've never really spent a lot of time thinking about how things could have gone differently in that race because I know that I did literally everything mm -hmm. humanly possible to win and that it just turned out that on election day it was an unwinnable environment. I mean, mm -hmm. Secretary Clinton lost our state that day by 19 points. Um, we lost by 2.8. And we set out in that race understanding that you know, I had won the Secretary of State's race four years earlier when President Obama had lost the state by 10. So we, we felt like we were on a trajectory that if, if the losses at the national level in Missouri could be held to 15 or under, then we thought we could survive that. It turned out we were right about all that, right? Because we lost by less than three points when their uh, margin was actually four points bigger than we were hoping it would be. And I do think that those four points were probably the events in that last week or so. Which still reverberates today. If de a Democratic Senate majority today with 53 rather than 50 is a whole different uh, situation. But I'm curious from, from your perspective, I think from the Democratic Party's perspective, they would be obviously delighted to have 53 rather than 50. But what about you? It, would it have given you the opportunity to, to get the help that you needed? Or do you think that you would have felt the responsibility? Because your term would be up in 2022. Oh, I'm, I'm so grateful that mm -hmm. I'm not a U.S. Senator. Uh, like, personally, yeah. I mean, he, look, well, let's just do politically first. I mean, politically, I ended up with a platform where, look, I'm like anybody else. I would rather there be more than 50 Democratic votes in the Senate because there's things that aren't getting passed that I'd like to see get passed. Um, but, you know, set that aside for a second and I ended up with a platform and was on track to go run for president, which I was going to do. Right. So, and had I won, it wouldn't have been a, it wouldn't have been a dissimilar situation. Right. I mean, assuming, assuming, uh, secretary Clinton still had not won, uh, the electoral college, I would have been in the exact same spot, but what would have happened is 
that it would have all accelerated so much faster, there's no way I would have gone to get help. Um, and I, I wouldn't have been in a position like I was where I was going to run for president. And then I was like, no, I'm going to go run for mayor. And then I was able to say, no, 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 I'm going to stop all this and go get help. I mean, if I had been a U.S. senator, I don't know that I'd have done that. I don't mm -hmm. know what I would have done. I think that there's a reasonable chance that I would have committed suicide in office. Mm -hmm. uh, and so here I am. I'm in a part of my life where I'm, I'm really enjoying my life. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way change that. And there's, there's also no part of me right now that wants to be a U.S. Senator. I mean, I love the job I have. I'm the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project. I love the life that I'm leading uh, and, and the things I get to do. I mean, today, I'm going to coach my son's Little League team. I'm the head coach of his Little League team. And then I'm going to leave from the Little League game. And I'm going to go directly to my game, which is not slow-pitch softball. I play on a pretty serious adult men's wood bat, you know, mm -hmm. over 30 baseball team. And I'm going to go play in that game and play center field and be diving into second if I get a chance to steal and have a hell of a time with a bunch of guys I really like. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful mm -hmm. for how things turned out. I was thinking the same thing as, as I was reading through it because you know, so in, in your letter when you dropped out, you talked about having suicidal thoughts and then you talked about your, your VA uh, therapist assessing that you were basically in the first round of that. And I think it's important for people to understand like the, the stages of this, that, you know, the first, the first moments come, you're not making plans to, to do it. You're not giving your things away. Uh, but you're just starting to have thoughts of, well, maybe the world would be better without me in it. And then mm -hmm. and he talks about how that, that that's a dangerous place. You're not, you're not in immediate danger, but if you don't get help at that point, you start moving to, you start moving to the next phase. And what was, was it those thoughts that triggered you to get help or was it more a kind of global collapse that you were feeling? It was a combination. I mean, I think I had been on the trajectory of where I ended up for a while in the sense that, you know, when I first came home to run for mayor, I also told myself I was going to go to the VA. I wasn't ready to admit to myself that it was PTSD or really even that it was service connected because I just was denying myself that uh, because I felt like I hadn't earned that. But I, I, uh, you know, but I had, I clearly, I clearly had an inkling whether I was more than an inkling, whether I was ready to admit it to myself or not. Right. And then eventually I got to the point where it was, it was this combination of understanding that things had been getting worse for a long time, but now they were getting worse faster. And I was increasingly having these feelings of feeling as though I was a burden to my family and they'd be better off without me and that I, I you know, was, would be better off dead. Uh, and, you know, that was scary to me. Like I, I didn't want to want to die. And, and so that's when I, I just said, you know, I got to try something else. And that's when I called the, the veterans crisis line, the VA crisis line. And what really was, uh, a bit of an epiphany for me was when I was talking to the woman on the other end of the phone and I could tell by the tone of her voice that I didn't sound any different than anybody she typically dealt with in that job. And up until that point, I had been telling myself, well, it's, you know, I didn't really earn this like the other people who have this problem or it's not really PTSD. And when I could hear the way she was talking to me, I knew I was just like everybody else. And so I went and I, for the like, I'd done this so many times to prove to myself I didn't have it. I went and Googled 
PTSD and read it with an open mind. And it was like somebody had written it about me. And that was, that was when I said, okay, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. Another thought I had reading, reading through the book is just how lucky you are at the choice of your life partner. Oh um, my God. In, uh, in every possible respect. And also, and she contributes uh, to the book in, in ways that are, I think, just extremely helpful from an artistic sense. Like it's, it's really interesting for, for listeners, like she, she chimes in with one page, two page, sometimes three page reflections that, that really put where you're coming from in context mm -hmm. in oftentimes a fun way, an interesting corrective. Any advice to people who are in a relationship with somebody who's going through what you were going through? how to recognize the signs of, hmm. of PTSD. Cause you talk about how she got secondary PTSD. I mean, it, it sounds like you were just a nightmare to live with, um, for a very long time and it was contagious. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't much fun. Yeah. I guess the advice, cause I, I get some version of this question a lot and it is one I struggle to answer. I feel like we in the whole do a pretty good job of answering it in the book, but uh, you know, if I had to boil it down, I guess one of the things that I often say to people is, look, you can't make them get help and you can't do it for them. But what you can do is you can, you can love them and you can try and, and help them get there, but you can't force it on them. Because I think one of the things that happens often when we see somebody in, in a spiral like that is, is we try and treat it sort of like, uh, what you're taught to do with like a drug addiction, right? Which is sort of a tough love. I got to get your attention sort of thing. doesn't work in that setting either, but yeah. Yeah. And in this case, it's like, you know, at least for me, all I can do is speak for me. Like I wasn't able to get better until I decided that I wanted to commit myself to getting treatment and getting better until I, until I got to a place where I, I just run out of ideas and it helped a lot that I had Diana and I had my friend Steven and I had people who were saying to me, Hey, here, here's some possible options, you know, or Steven in my case saying like, look, he basically mentored me through what that would be because he had gotten his own version of help. But it, you know, it was really important that I had those things, but sometimes that's not enough. And ultimately I had to choose, like ultimately I had to have that moment where I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to feel this way anymore. Um, and so I guess the advice I give people is don't make the mistake of thinking that you're able to do this for them. You can be there for them. You can be supportive, but you're not going to be able to just convince them to do it. And so you also write about the veterans community project where you, where you still are and you, you talk about touring it as a mayoral candidate, the way, you know, the way that candidates tour these types of projects and facilities all over the place, but being like deep, deeply impressed by it. And I, f I feel like it's, it's importance. The, the idea's importance in our society has only increased since then, as we're seeing the, the broad housing crisis, the, the fentanyl crisis, the, uh, the home, the, you know, homeless crisis around the country. And so I, I'll real quickly describe it, but I want to hear, like, I'm, I'm curious how, how you've been able to, how much you've been able to scale it and what the, what the obstacles are and what, you know, if this is something that can become a bigger part of the national conversation, but basically it seems these are, you're kind of rebuilding barracks in a way, or you're, you're building housing for uh, veterans that takes them back 
to that to the last place where they kind of felt safe. So these are single, you know, just single unit because if, if you're suffering from PTSD, you can't sleep with strangers. You you know, the beds are facing the doors, no windows looking into other places. And it, it made me think of this interview that I saw with a homeless person recently where they said, look, the other problem on top of all the other problems that I have is that I can't just decide today that I'm done with being addicted to drugs and not being unemployed and being homeless. There's no path for me to show up somewhere and say, hey, yes, I have 12 you know, misdemeanors. Yes, this is what I've been doing the last five years, but I am done I'm, and I'm committed to getting better. Please give me a job. Please give me a place to stay. That almost doesn't exist. Now, he was saying it doesn't exist. It sort of exists in small pockets, but certainly that's how a lot of people feel that there isn't a place. There isn't a way. And so you just go one day to the next. You're like, this is just who I am. So can you describe the the VCP a little bit and, and how it fits into kind of our national conversation around homelessness, crime, PTSD? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you asking about it. So yeah, Veterans Community Project, what we do is we build these villages of tiny houses with wraparound case management services. And the whole concept is just as you described, is to put people back in a place where they were most recently in their life stable and successful, and then restart the military to civilian transition back at day one, so that they'll be successful in it. And we have an 85% success rate of getting people into permanent independent housing and, and them staying there and being successful in it. Uh, the other part of what we do is is the walk-in centers, which is the part of it that I took advantage of, which helps any veteran in the community with any need they, they would have. In my case, they helped me get my VA paperwork done quickly so that I wouldn't have to wait months to start getting weekly therapy. So in that respect and in the respect of uh, the residential side, we're saving lives. I, after I had gone to therapy for a while and was really starting to do much better was advising VCP's co-founders, uh, kind of mentoring them a little bit through how you might build a national organization because they were getting all these invites to come go into other communities and replicate what they'd done in Kansas City. And I had built a national organization with Let America Vote. And so finally, Brian Meyer, uh, who's my good friend and is the CEO and co-founder of VCP was like, hey man, why don't you just come here and do this full time? So now for three years, I've been the president of national expansion. And in that time, um, we've expanded to the Denver area, uh, St. Louis area, Sioux Falls area, and Oklahoma City, all in varying levels of, you know, progress so far. Like in some cases, we're building villages. In some cases, we're providing services, but we're eventually going to have full operations in each place. And then we've got some other places on the horizon as well. And yeah, I, I absolutely think that this model that says, hey, we don't care what the nature of your service was. We don't care about any of that stuff. We don't have any follow-up questions. Did you raise your right hand and swear an oath? Did you wear the uniform for even a day? Yeah, boom, you're a veteran. You qualify for 100% of our services. And uh, it makes a huge difference when people are able to buy in in, in, a, in a real full way because they know that there's not going to be a point at which they're going to be told, oh, I'm sorry, you, you were one year short in your service of being able mm-hmm. to, or one deployment short of being able to qualify for X. We don't do that. How much of an obstacle are the NIMBYs in these, in these areas? And what's, what are the biggest obstacles to scaling this? Yeah, the, the biggest obstacle, uh, frankly, to scaling it um, tends to be uh, resources, which is to say, obviously, money, philanthropic mm-hmm. support, but also part of that is 
just as we grow this business model out, making sure that we're growing at a pace that makes sense and allows us to maintain the quality of what we do. Like our case management method, our approach is really unique and revolutionary. And we don't want to compromise that in order to expand quickly. Um, and so we've grown in a deliberate fashion in order to make sure that's the case. Um, but then the sort of NIMBY aspect, it's interesting. Um, sometimes when you first start working with a community, uh, there's some hesitancy, maybe in a neighborhood or, or in certain pockets of a city about this. And then when they actually see what it is we're building, uh, it's embraced pretty quickly because we don't build sheds with beds. I mean, our houses, for instance, are there's they're just like yours or mine. They're just smaller. Mm -hmm. And these are beautiful facilities that we build. I mean, so what ends up happening is we build it and the community, like the people who live in that area tend to go from maybe at first being a little hesitant that it's going in there to once it's there, like when you ask them what part of town they live in, they'll say, oh, I live over by VCP because they're proud that it's there. And so we have a pretty unique thing we're able to brag about, which is we move homeless people into an area and increase the property values as a result because of the quality of what we build and the enormous success of what we do. How big is it at this point? Like how many beds have you been able to put together? So we have 49 units in, in Kansas City um, and we are just going vertical on, on new units in St. Louis. And then shortly after that, we'll be doing the same in, in Colorado. So it's interesting. We're fully operational in our original location, but because of COVID and some other things, we had, you know, the organization as a whole is only five years old and it's only, you know, been a couple of years that we've been on this let's go national thing. So we are just about to have our first you know, fully operational units for housing folks outside of Kansas City. But we've been serving veterans like in the Denver area, for instance, for about a year and housing them and just not at our own facility. But that's going to change soon. And last question is, and I know you didn't deal with this personally, but I'm curious what what your take is on psych psychedelics, MDMA, mostly mostly MDMA, but I guess psilocybin um, is starting to be used as well for treatment or is or is in some countries for treatment of of PTSD how how kind of accepted is that becoming in in the veterans community is that something that that you're seeing make progress it's definitely something people are talking about more and more and I've talked to several people about it including a lot of people who have who have used it for as part of their treatment plans I can only talk about my own experience, right? And and my experience is I went in to therapy thinking I'm going to do what I need to do to improve and to get better. And so my therapist said to me, he said, look, I think you're a really good candidate um, for cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy. And we're going to do those. And if there's still a lot left to be done, and if those can't really achieve uh, all that we want, then we're going to go into EMDR, which is the eye movement uh, therapy. Um, it turns out in my case, we didn't end up going to the next step. And or I don't know if it was the next step, but in my case, it would have been the next step EMDR. I don't rule that out. Like at some point, if, if that's beneficial to me, I, I would do it. Um, but if I had done all three of those and I still wasn't, I didn't have the progress that I was looking for, uh, then absolutely. I would have been saying, okay, well, what else can I try? Um, and again, I'm not a clinician, but just in my in as somebody who's been talking about this a lot over the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of clinicians. And I guess one of the takeaways that I get about this stuff from them uh, is that, look, what needs to be understood is that there's really three main evidence-based therapies, which are cognitive processing therapy and um, prolonged exposure and then EMDR that are proven, studied, and it's like 
these are the main ones and but they're not saying don't do any of the others they're just saying that has to be the basis for your treatment and then the and then if if you want to try the other things a lot of them are saying you know work with a doctor work with a therapist and make it part of those that's what i've learned about it right it's just that um there seems to be some somewhat of a misconception out there by some that it's a matter of take this drug go on this trip and that's gonna and that's not and you know when you think about it nothing really works that way right it's like oh this is a a piece of an overall therapy approach in some cases and my father actually as a as a clinician has um done some of the emdr which is just fascinating correct me if i'm wrong my understanding is that that it's something like eye movement desensitization reprogram or something you where you you re-experience the trauma while moving your eyes back and forth to try to simulate REM sleep to help help your mind because REM sleep is the place where you know your experiences become processed into memories is that is that basically that that's how he's explained it to me do you know people who've who've gone through that is is that more or less what it is have have you found people who have found that to be pretty effective well first of all let's go with your with your clinician father's definition, because I wouldn't know how to define it, but that's what I've observed when I've seen it, uh, you know, on video and that kind of thing. And I do have friends who have done it, and most of the people I know who have done it spoke very well of it. And so I guess what I try to get across with this stuff is that it's really important to me, just as it's important to me that nobody reads the book and says, oh, well, that that story, that experience only applies to if you're a combat veteran who was going to run for president of the United States. Like, I don't want people taking that away from it, right? But I also don't want people in the same vein taking away from my story, oh, well, what's supposed to work for you is CPT and PE. And if that doesn't work, then what the hell is wrong? With you? Like, no, I, that's just my experience. And what I try and get across to everybody is uh, post-traumatic growth is worth pursuing, period. And whatever you've got to go do, whatever, however many steps it takes, however long it takes, it is worth it. Like keep trying new things and commit yourself to those things and follow the advice of your, of your mental health providers um, and just commit to it. Because what I ended up learning later on in the process is that the biggest differentiator and the biggest reason why actually the majority of people who do enter treatment for PTSD do get better, although we never hear about that, is that the big determinant is did they commit to the program? Did they do their homework? And whatever that ends up looking like for you, commit to it, like throw yourself into it. And if you'll do that, you'll be pleased with the results, I believe. Well, Jason Kanner's new book is called Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. For people who want more, Jason Kanner, your your, your podcast is back, Majority 54. Uh, you're, as you said, you're, you're, you're now, President of National Expansion for Veterans Community Project, also the author of a previous bestseller, which I have not read, but now I'm going to have to go back and read that one because I really, I really appreciated this book a lot, and I wanted to thank you uh, for joining me here. Thank you. Uh, the one last thing I really appreciate that the last thing I'd add is that uh, all of my royalties from Invisible Storm go to the fight against veteran suicide and veterans homelessness by benefiting Veterans Community Project. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about the organization as well. No, thank you. That was Jason Kander, and that's our show. A quick thank you to John Schwartz for filling in last week as a guest host. I'm taking a bit of time off this summer to work on my next book, and we'll have a slightly slower 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Our schedule of shows and also some other guest hosts I'm excited about that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support of this podcast. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to back our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon.